Hello, everybody. I'm Michael Racanelli. And I'm Tony Estes. And this is Red All Over for the week ending September 9th, 2017. It's our second episode. Tony, good to have you back. It's great to be back. I had such an enjoyable time last time. Yeah, me too, man. It was fun. All right, well, let's just jump right into it, I guess. Absolutely. I have, uh, let's see here, Chicago Sun-Times, uh, Mick Doomkey, I believe that's how you pronounce his last name, uh, article, Years Late with Big Gaps, CHA Nears End of Housing Transformation. Now, you and I grew up. In Chicago, as we went up for, and right. you, you know, you remember Cabrini Green, Robert Absolutely. Taylor Homes. Absolutely. Um, back in '99, Richard M. Daly he launched what they say, where he said was the largest, most ambitious redevelopment of public housing in the United States. Um, that project has been ongoing. They're right. now. Uh, it's been 18 years. Wow, it's amazing to think that. That's just about the time I was about to leave Chicago. Okay. I uh, I left Chicago in 2000, in February of 2000. So that was right after the announcement. And I've been back a few times since, but I'll let you keep going with this. Yeah, obviously Cabrini Green and Robert Taylor Homes came down. Um, and the officials for the housing authority called them uh, some of the worst housing in America. They were, I mean, they were pretty torn up um, from many fires and, and, and kind of just neglect. Right. Housing Urban Development Department thinks that they still won't make their mid-year deadline this year, and they're already eight years over the original deadline. Wow. I know. So 18 years later, um, they're going to reach 25,000 apartments rebuilt and rehabilitated, which... You know, is um, it's quite short from what they I think they originally set, which I think was around forty thousand. Wow, eleven of the twenty-five thousand set aside for families, um, and that's actually one third fewer than what was promised for families. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty significant after taking as long as they did. Right. That they're coming up so short. <laughs> um, you know. So there was obviously a whole other program um, where they tried to take the residents that were in these buildings and disperse them into higher income areas. Right. There was a, there was a voucher program. Yeah. Um, and they actually capped the waiting list to receive a voucher at 40,000 names. And that was years ago. And some of these people are still waiting for housing. Uh there was a woman, uh, Jeanette Taylor. Um, she put her list uh, name on the list in 1994, and she was a young mother, right? Um, after more than a decade, CHA offered her an apartment, and then she ended up not taking it because her son was then now 18 years old. Right. Instead of being eight years old, <laughs> she was a young mother, um, and he wouldn't have been allowed to stay with her because he graduated and he was an adult. So. Right. She's 42 now. Um, and it's still hard to find an affordable place to live. Four kids uh, still live with her. And she says that her pay as an or- education organizer for the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization barely covers her bills, including the $1,000 a month rent for their apartment in Woodlawn. I mean, th- the rent in Chicago has, has been going up significantly. In fact, the last, I think the last thing I read, maybe <clears throat> last year or the year before, 
um, the price per square foot was more than LA. Wow. In the city, which is, which is kind of absurd. It is. It, um, and depending on like where I lived, like prior to moving out to LA, I was, uh, I was on the South side. I was, uh, down in the, um, I was down on 91st and, uh, Eberhardt, which is right. 91st and King drive, right. right in that neighborhood. And well, fortunately I lived in a family owned building. My family actually owned my aunt owned the building. So my rent wasn't crazy, but looking at the rent around that area was, you know, it was pretty high then anyway, Chicago, you know, metropolitan city. Um, of course I don't, yeah, I know we don't compare to New York as far as our rents in Chicago, yeah. but in LA and LA is pricey. You know, you know that <laughs> I know that. Yeah. So, we all know that. Right. So to hear that, that Chicago per square foot is even more expensive than LA. Yeah, that's pretty By like maybe 17 or 18 cents. I think it was. Wow. I mean, when you consider what's happening, um, even in the West loop, the West Loop is everybody's getting priced out that was there before. I know there was a huge issue with a lot of the uh, the purveyors and like, you know, people that su- are su- supplying meat. There's a lot of butchers there. Right. Um, they they're getting priced out from the taxes and everything because it's just the, the renovation that's going on. In the West Loop alone is ridiculous. And it's that's traveling down, you know, Lake Street and into the West Side eventually. And the West Side, West Side is already pretty much um, pretty pretty damaged um from the gentrification that's gone on with you know these two uh these two um housing projects right yeah it's funny um (laughs) i I wonder how uh dr carson's gonna handle this now that this is under (laughs) his jurisdiction right exactly i had to to throw that little political jab there um so they're saying that a legal mandate is the only way to get the CHA to follow through on this whole thing to finish it out. Um, there is apparently 379 million in cash. Uh, the agency claiming its last annual financial statement, and the CHA says now it's down to 237 million. So seems like a pretty big, uh, pretty big gap in the funding over the last year for n- being 18 year, you know for being 18 years later and eight years over the original, you know, but that's, that's par for the course with right. Illinois. What is the, um, the Chicago, uh, the public school CPS? What is the it? CPS, it's know. what's the, the budget deficit at this point? Oh, it's something the, ridiculous. Is it? I know chance the rapper donated a million, a million of his million own bucks, right. and I know he raised some money for it. Right. But, and then he, he appealed to Rauner to try and, and, you know, just fund the schools but it hasn't it hasn't happened yet. So there's just I mean, this obviously this uh, alone speaks to a again a bigger problem um, in the racial disparity in Chicago that's just constantly going on. You know, it's interesting. I think I did like I, I just assumed like things that are taxed in Chicago and in Illinois, um, but especially Chicago proper. I just felt things that were always taxed there were just normal taxes. It wasn't until I moved up to Milwaukee that I found out other places didn't tax you for food. In Chicago, there's a tax on groceries. It's smaller than other taxes, but there is a tax. 
And I remember moving to Milwaukee, going to the store and, you know, getting my grocery items. And, and I remember initially being amazed that, you know, the price was not including any kind of taxes. The reason I bring that up, I just feel Chicago definitely places such a huge amount of taxes on, um, on the populace, on, on its citizens. And, with that driving that revenue and I get more, you know, more affluent neighborhoods definitely will have, you know, more taxes paid hence, you know, more money for their school systems. However, with every municipal tax there is, especially like I said, on food, the high tax rates on non food goods, you know, and services, there's an egregious mismanagement of the money in Chicago. Um, I think you definitely have to look at corruption in that equation. Chicago. Oh, absolutely. Is historically I mean, there, I mean, the, the tax rate in this, in the city proper is like, isn't it like 9.75 at this point, which is basically equal to LA. Right. You know, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what, where that money is, is going. Right. Um, but I, you know, I again, I haven't lived there in seven years. I go back relatively often to visit my family. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not totally involved with the Chicago political scene anymore. I don't know what what Rom is trying to accomplish without, you know, aside from banning Trump from the city, <laughs> apparently. Um, right. But yeah, so that's that's what's happening with this with the CHA currently. And uh, I mean, I, I've you know I've driven up and down. Uh, division over the last couple of years and it's all you know seeing like the, they that lot uh, where Karina Green was is still empty it's still empty they put up wow. some townhomes there I know there's the last and there's a huge target um, the last time I checked there was one small uh, I think it was a liquor store holding out in the middle of the block wow surprisingly they haven't <laughs> they haven't forced them out yet but that whole that whole area is just so different from you know yeah, the last time I was in that neighborhood was maybe, I guess, around five years ago or so. And a friend of mine lives actually in this uh, pretty posh little apartment right right across the street from where Cabrini Green used to be, where the towers were. So I remember being just amazed at how it was looking over there. One thing I had always thought about was the displacement of the people that were there. And you addressed it a little bit earlier regarding the uh, voucher system and like assimilating them into uh, higher income neighborhoods. Uh, Now to hear that that voucher wasn't meeting the needs of like a vast amount of people that were displaced. I wonder what happened to them. Did they go live with family members? You know? Like- yeah. There, I mean, I guess there's, um, the agency is going to end up with 17,000 fewer apartments than they had 20 years ago for families. Wow. That's a pretty significant drop in right. housing. Right. The, do you think a lot of people left state? I mean, actually, um, I did read, uh, study maybe it was last year that uh, Illinois' population is dropping. Okay. So I'm guessing they left. You know, there's obviously there's ch- cheaper living. Um, you know, you can go to Kansas and live for 
half the amount right. of money that you can live for. But you're in, in Kansas. Norway. But you're in Kansas. I mean, it's location, 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 right? Not that there's anything sorry, wrong with Kansas. Sorry to everyone in Kansas. Yeah, but, not that there's anything but, wrong with Kansas. I like, I personally like Kansas. Um, I've only driven through. Yeah. KCK, shout out. Um, <laughs> I spent a lot of time in Kansas City, Missouri. All right. Love that spot. So there was a the gentleman, Willie Reed, that was growing up in the Ix homes. We called it the Ickies. On the, on the south side um, in the 1960s. And he said that, you know, he remembers that being five or six years old. He said that every Christmas, there was a Christmas tree in the roof of every building. Wow. Everything was lit up. They were taking care of things, waxing the hallways. When he was 11 years old, he got a job there sweeping and cleaning and he said just over time, they started deteriorating. And right. then the family started moving out. And that's actually, I don't know if you've ever read any of Malcolm Gladwell's books, like The Tipping Point. I haven't read it, but I'm familiar. So there's actually, there's actually um, uh, a story in there, a study that talking about how if there's, you know, there could be a nice neighborhood and then just say that a business moves out of, of you know, a warehouse of some sort, right? Right. And at first, everything's going to stay the same. And then some kids might come by and they might throw rocks and break a couple windows, right? And right. then if no one fixes those windows, people are going to think, oh, it's okay to break more windows. So then some other kids come, they break more windows, and then that building starts to look dilapidated. And then slowly that sort of process spreads out because someone's not, you know, it's just the, the mentality like, well, if they're not taking care of it, then why am I going to take care of this? Um, and I think that's kind of what's going there. I mean, the, the, it was the sixties in, in Chicago it was, it was pretty rough. I mean, right, things absolutely. were, things were changing, you know, right. I mean, the nation overall was changing obviously. Um, and I think that's just kind of what happened. They started in, again, it's a racial disparity thing. Right. Um, they, they had these homes, they were first taking care of them and then they kind of let that go. And then as it, you know, as he says, he's like, the families moved out gangs moved in. Right. And you also have to address within public housing, when you talk about families moving out, that was actually government encouraged. Right. Uh, It was actually government mandated, I should say, not encouraged. Right. There were people who were on financial assistance living in these homes and these subsidized homes where the woman who's on welfare wasn't allowed to have a man living in the home as well, or they couldn't be on welfare. They couldn't even be in that home. So that system in place that that was in place in, uh, in these communities, but they directly resulted in the, the dismantling of the uh, family home the family structure within these communities. And of course, with there, when there are no strong families around, then you are going to see you're going to see gangs take take over take precedence where there could have been families right and uh, you know but I, I definitely feel that was by design right and I I think you know you're talking about the idea of that wasn't supposed to be a permanent thing it was you know you, there was certain situation but I think that that also came from you know again america with its manufacturing uh being very prevalent it was easier for people to find jobs right and slowly those jobs have moved out and or they become um you know quote unquote higher skilled jobs right where you have to get retrained or or this that and the other thing and and 
people, you know, college wasn't necessarily a thing. And so now you're sort of creating, you're just creating this divide that's just getting wider and wider and wider. And it's not the fault of anybody who was living in one of the homes or on financial assistance. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of just a, an overall issue that no one dealt with at the core. Right. Sort of like climate change or, <laughs> or right. anything else. And then, and then we, we constantly kick the can down the road. Uh, it's, it's very much a shame when you realize we don't, as a society, have forethought in a lot of things that we do and a lot of programs we implement. And rarely of, do we learn from history, apparently. Right. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of times when we talk about history, especially from an academic sense, kids sit in school, oh, this is boring. And history is not made relatable to them. They, It's some boring story in a book about people long ago. But what what's not being, I guess, transferred or relayed or being made clear to these kids and, you know children who become adults is that no matter what year it was, people are still people. People still have the same basic feelings and inclinations and responses to different things. Take away technology, you know, technology. I mean, it's, it's definitely very prevalent in our society now. However, we're still human beings. We still respond basically the same, the same to certain stimuli. And that being said, history can teach us, and we refuse to see that. But again, I think that's a that's a problem with the way history is taught to us and how we look at history. You know, we feel we've passed certain behaviors, and I totally disagree with that because as we see the political climate, the social climate in America— Unfortunately to me, I think it is very, very reminiscent of 1930s Germany, to be honest. So regarding this issue of breaking up families and, you know, not taking care of those that are like less fortunate, that's going to have a terrible effect on society when we you know, daily embarked on the the whole agenda to tear down the projects and gentrify the area. And that's basically what it was all about, gentrification. Exactly. Uh, you know, that was prime real estate close to the business district. Exactly. We wanted to get people from the suburbs back in so they wouldn't mm-hmm. have these outrageous commutes and building. I get it. I understand. And but, bring more tax dollars back into the city of right, Chicago. Right, Exactly. But what are you doing to these people? What are you doing to these children, these powerless children that, you know, you, right. you, you take them out of there and granted living in Cabrini Green, living in Robert Taylor homes, living in the Ickies. And it, it, it's just it's definitely not a great place to be, you know. No. And I mean, on top of the fact of, again, is like I mentioned that the CPS is like underfunded. So you're just creating a double layer problem. Right. Right. Absolutely. Let's uh, let's move on to your first story of today. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll go on forever. All right. All right. My first story today. It's a it's a pretty short story, but okay. it's a, it's it's. I'm sure we'll make it. I'm, I'm short. I'm a, I'm amused by the story to some extent, and 
I'm just intrigued. It comes from the great state of Florida. We love Florida. Oh, Florida's going through some hell right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's this story is regarding what what's happening in Florida regarding mm-hmm. Hurricane Irma. Uh, very topical. But this story is like kind of bizarre little story. So Florida police warned people not to shoot their guns at Hurricane Irma. Hmm. Now, this story was in Time, in Time magazine. Wow. And uh, the author is Elena Abramson. All right. There was a Facebook event created called Shoot at Hurricane Irma. (laughs) And one of the uh, Facebook page's administrators, his name is Ryan um, Ryan Edwards. So, you know... On his, on the Facebook page, like they show a guy with like a hunting rifle, like pointing at the sky. So now this thing took off this Facebook page. A lot of interest is shown as of right now. There are like 55,000 people showing interest in the event. It's so much so that the, the uh, Pasco County Sheriff's Office, they, they issued a tweet. complete with a diagram showing a hunter like shooting and the diagram shows like how the uh, wind swirls around in a hurricane. Oh, is that what it does? Yeah, (laughs) right. Exactly. (laughs) And, and it says, uh, bullets come back. Don't shoot. Unbelievable. It's amazing that I, I feel that the, the, the sheriff's department, like, saw enough of a threat and knows enough of its population that it felt a lot of their, uh, the Floridians might like go out with their guns and, Hey, you know, honestly, and start shooting. This Facebook (laughs) event sounds like the most Florida thing that I've heard in in quite a while. (laughs) I don't know how much time you spent in Florida. I spent quite a bit of time in Florida. I've never been to Florida. Really? You've never been to Florida. Florida. Well, it is a treat. Let me tell you, um, I, I mean, I love people all over. I have a lot of good friends in Florida right. and, and, but that is a very, Florida is sort of like the last wild West, but it's in the East. Right. I mean, you have the, you have the open carry, stand your ground, like all those laws and like, it's, it's a very, it's a very odd place. Um, a lot of elderly down there. Yeah. There's, I mean, you get in certain areas and there's certain areas is just, you know, there's people that, you know, hang out. Right. Um, and clearly have assault rifles and they decided that'd be a great idea to shoot the hurricane, <laughs> which is just, I mean, I understand being bored, but I think you have a lot more pressing things to worry about. Well, now in his defense, the, uh, the administrator who I referenced earlier, Ryan Edwards, he said, I'm amazed that anyone could see it as anything else than a joke. And I'm sure, you know, he came at it tongue in cheek. Hey, let's do this. And I, I get that. Dude, we have a reality show host as president. <laughs> right. How exactly. Can, what do you mean? How can <laughs> no one see it as serious? <laughs> right. And and I think that's the fear. And I think you can you can glean rightfully so. It should be a concern. Out of fifty five thousand people, there are gonna be some nuts. There I promise you there's gonna people. be at least a hundred YouTube videos of people shooting into the hurricane. Oh, uh, I hope I guarantee not. it. I hope not. That would be horrible. I hope a lot of things, but <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. That would be tragic, truly. 
Yeah, so that that story just it was so screwy to me. It was like, yeah. wow, really? And uh, I mean, you really should take a look at their uh, their Twitter feed and see that diagram. The best part is that they tweeted it out. We've gone to this sort of like Twitter. Twitter was dying, I feel, and all of a sudden, Trump and Trump just <laughs> the Trump effect on Twitter. <laughs> Everybody's back on the on the Twitter now. Wow tweeting away i mean i love twitter i'm on there really um i have an account and i don't ever look at it oh that's yeah. probably actually for your mental health it's probably best don't look at to it. be honest with you yeah <laughs> it's a lot of a lot of nasty stuff going on there i see like as i'm scrolling through the different uh pages on my phone i'll yeah. see like i have x amount of like you know messages or things i hadn't read so finally i'll take a look but right. twitter's not my uh, yeah my mainstay and but you're right i think it's it's definitely been revived especially with trump and you know his dictating policies and his commentary like they've been i mean twitter's been pretty soft on on uh, a lot of the abuse that's going on too because they love the traffic let's be honest you know right um you know they'll do you know, I've been there's a there's a whole thing with Twitter where you can get verified, right? You get this little blue like check mark badge, okay. which essentially says you are who you say you are, right? So like celebrities and public, they say public figures and whatever have it, right? Right. I've been trying, I've been trying to get mine. I've submitted and been denied ten times now, apparently, that oh. I'm not who I say I am because I don't have some sort of uh, public significance. But there are plenty of neo Nazi leaders that have been verified for some reason. Wow. And that I don't understand. Why is it okay to verify a neo-Nazi, but not someone who fights hate or, you know? Well, let me tell you, Twitter, Michael Racanelli actually exists. I'm staring at him right now. <laughs> it's actually me on Twitter. Yeah. I've, I've verified with my phone number and the whole, the whole nine yards, but wow. Twitter hates me. So uh, do they give you any mess- message as to No, they why just or- tell you that, that uh, you haven't been approved at this time and... But I guess I'm not, I'm just not culturally relevant apparently yet. So I have to do something. We'll see what Red All Over does. You hear that, listeners? Talk about us. That's right. All right. So are you, uh, yeah, that, that's about all I have on that. I just found that just really unique, very Florida to me from, but my only, uh, knowledge of Florida is media centric. (laughs) I've not been there. Florida is an interesting place. My second article for today. Uh, it's another article from futurism.com. I love that website. I referenced it last on the last podcast. Uh, Dom Galeone, I believe that's how you say the author's name. The US FDA just approved a treatment that reprograms cells to fight cancer. That's very, it's a very big, bold headline, very promising. Right. Um, so the treatment's called CAR T therapy which was previously referred to as CTL-019, which no one's going to remember. Uh, it works by using a patient's own T cells, right? Okay. Um, which are a type of immune cell to fight the cancer. So the cells are extracted from patients and modified to carry a new gene. So it's kind of like a Trojan horse. Okay. Um, and then it's coded for a specific protein uh, known as a chimeric antigen receptor or CAR, hence the name CAR T therapy, right? And the modified T cells are then placed back in the patient's body where it begins attacking the cancer cells. So the FDA has approved it for use with a particularly potent kind of blood cancer called <laughs> right. acute lymphoblastic leukemia. 
All right. Uh, and Novartis, um, who's a big drug company, right? Um, they were they were the ones working on a treatment. And they named it uh, Kimraya, K Y M R I A H. So it pro- it's producing an overall remission rate of eighty three percent. Wow. Yes, in wow. the pediatric and young adult patients within just within three months. That's which is huge. incredible, incredible. Uh, unfortunately, right now for a one-time treatment, it costs four hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars. Of do course, wow. no, of course, yeah, exactly. Um, though they're promising not to charge people that don't respond within the first month, some sort of saving grace, I guess. Obviously, with the FDA, it's it's more about you know a better treatment. Um, it's approving this is kind of a nod to going forward with other gene therapy treatments. Okay. Because as we've seen with, with things like stem cells and whatnot, right, um, right. the U S especially has been sort of soft on science. Um, Europe, Europe, places like, you know, Italy, France, even the UK, um, you know, they've, they've done a lot of, you know, Iceland and places like that. They've done a lot of research on gene therapy and, and, you know, stem cells and whatnot. That's interesting. I have actually a friend of mine. She's a, um, she's a scientist that she works at Harvard actually. And she, she does, um, she does research and things like that, like finding out, uh, like doing the stem cell research and the whole nine. I would wonder what her thoughts are on this or her knowledge on this particular, um, this new development. I mean, but 83% success mm-hmm. rate in three months. Yeah. That's amazing. I know. I I think we definitely need a, uh, a diversion away from chemotherapy. I think. Absolutely. That's I mean, that's horrendous. just, I mean, you know, my dad went through one treatment of that and that's how he got pneumonia and then which caused him to, to, you know, to pass away. But, uh, cause he had lung cancer, which broke right. his brain. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's a, such a, it's, it's such a, it's like a nuclear tactic. It's, it's destroying not only the bad cells, but the good cells and everything around it. It's, right. um, it's, it's the best solution we've had thus far. And I wish that, um, you know, we could get a new, a situation where we embrace science and forward thinking, thinking less about things like religion and bringing them into to science because that really has no place when someone's dying. Like anything you have to do to treat them or push forward and we need to bring the costs down. We need to get, we can't have this. There's certain things that shouldn't be for profit. Right. Like I, I like, again, I believe in capitalism to a certain extent. Right. But you have to have this base level thing of taking care of your players taking for care the common good for the common good exactly that's everything should there are certain things should be for the common good health is one of them right right somehow we have been blinded into thinking or that it's wrong for everybody to have access to health care i think we've been misinformed into thinking i think they push this idea of the whole pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps Right. Everybody needs help with healthcare. Everybody yeah. needs, you know, there. You just need a certain base level. If you want to get some sort of additional healthcare, I guess there there could be a way to go about it. But it should be a relatively level playing field. You shouldn't just get sick and die because you don't have any money. Again, right. we made all of this up. Yeah. I, None of this. 
healthcare does not exist in nature. Money does not exist in nature. It's, this is a thing that we made up. We can change the rules. We can do whatever we want with it. If you see someone drowning and you have a long stick and you can, they're close enough for you to extend your stick and have them grab it and you can pull them out, save them from drowning. Nobody's going to argue the fact that you shouldn't a do that as a responsible human being and b like, you be looked at as like the biggest douche if you're like, <laughs> if I give you my stick, will you give me $20? Right, right. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous to even think that that would occur. Right. That that would be acceptable in anybody's mind. Right. Yet, this is what's happening right, really right. with regards to right. our health care Or you system. can't have my stick because it's my stick. Right. It's like, sometimes someone else is going to need the stick. Right. I found my stick. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of, it's kind of absurd. And and the funny thing is, is when you see what happens with, you know, everybody hating Obamacare, it's just a weird thing that now everybody loves it. It's like Medicare, Medicare for all. Like there's certain things again that the government can do. Okay. You know, and we have enough resources and we have enough money in this country to where people are not going to be like, laying in a hospital bed in a room of like 20 people. Right. If we fund it correctly, you know, even if we pay a dollar each more for, for healthcare and our taxes, like that's cool. That's something that I want to spend tax dollars on. A lot of Not the guys. Worse. Yeah. The, a lot of the guys I grew up with in high school, went to school with, they argue the point, you know, Oh, we know people in Canada or I've lived in Canada and you know, it's horrible, this and that and the other. And my counter is always, well, how many people in America are dying because they don't have access to healthcare? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even at mental health, like everything here. And you know, my mom just had a kidney transplant. Like, um, she's doing better now. August. Yeah. Two months ago now. I love that. And, she, you know, she's on medication. She has done some anti-rejection stuff and, um, she has, she's retired. She worked all of her life, paid all of her taxes. She had the, the American Kidney Foundation covering things. She has Medicaid and, uh, additional Blue Cross stuff that she pays for. Right. right. And she is on a fixed income. She gets social security. Right. Right. She's still paying. There's a pill that she's been taking. She has to take six months, $150 copay. Wow. So I had I just I just bought a hundred and fifty dollars a month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last two months I've helped her out and, and and gotten that for her, but it's just it's absurd. Like she is on a fixed income. It's you know and to have to pay. I mean, I'm glad she got it. She's glad she got the kidney. She can right. live like a, a somewhat normal life now after being on dialysis for five years. Right. Um. But. To have to like pay that amount of money, it's just absurd, you know. Now, she, how long does she have to stay on that medication in perpetuity? Uh, not that specific one. That okay. specific one, six months. She's down three months basically already. She got one from the hospital. So that's nine hundred bucks out of you know. She oh, has yeah. to come up yeah. with another nine hundred. I mean, even when even when um, even when she was in the hospital and and she was being released they were going to, first of all, they were going to give her a walker, right? The right. two wheels and the, the right, two, you right. know, foldable walker. She was like, oh, great, that's cool, like the insurance cover it. Then the nurse came and said, the insurance doesn't cover the walker. Um, she's like, it'll cost $125. Wow. Which is, a, which is just absurd. 
Right. I, I literally went to Goodwill and bought one and just cleaned it and it was brand basically brand new for four dollars. Four dollars. There's right. there's no reason that these things should cost one hundred and twenty five dollars. It's not a hundred and twenty five dollar piece of equipment. You're absolutely right. <laughs> it's remember there was um, some a story about like the IV bags that uh, yeah. and I, I posted it on Facebook a couple of months ago, but hospitals are charging. A ridiculous amount it's of like money. It's like $500 for, or something. Yeah, for, for, for an IV bag that costs like cents to make. Right. Or, or you know, when they give you Tylenol and it's like $8 right. for one Tylenol. For one, for one pill. And I understand that there's overhead to running a hospital. There's, right. I mean, there's a massive electric bill and there's, you know, maintenance and, and whatnot. But there's a better way to do all of this. Right. There really is a better way. This is this, you know, and this kind of perpetuating it's a, it's basically like the prison system. Right. It's almost, it's almost keeping people sick to generate income. You know, people right. are on like, they have a pill for this and they get prescribed another pill. They don't treat the underlying cause and they prescribe another pill. Now all these drug companies are made like 12 different drug companies are making money off you. Um, it's, it's just kind of absurd. It really is. It's, incredible we've we've gone from gene therapy to drug companies so with with that <laughs> um i think i'll i'll wrap up my second story for today All and right. we'll move on to your second story because again we'll just go on forever right so my second story iraq holding 1400 foreign wives children of suspected isis fighters that's insane Really, truly insane. The uh, it's from Reuters, and the author's name is Raya Jalabi. So now I would I'm like really, really conflicted about this story in a way. You have ISIS fighters, radicalized ISIS fighters, but they have their family members. They, you know, when when ISIS held Mosul for so long, they. Yeah, they brought their families with them, you know. So I was reading the story and they talked to a, a young woman who was 27 years old. She's a French woman of Algerian descent. She has a uh, three-month-old daughter, but she told a heartbreaking story. She said that her husband tricked her into going there. They were in France, and he was like, well, I want to go to Turkey. Let's go to Turkey. They go to Turkey, and then she finds out he's linking up with ISIS, and she tried to leave her husband, and he tracked her down and pretty much just dragged her into uh, into Iraq, into Mosul. Wow. And uh, they had a five-year-old son who was actually killed by a rocket while he was playing out in the streets. Now... According to the story, a lot of these people are dealing with the same types of issues. A lot of these wives are just dragged there by their husbands. They're not radicalized. And what's been happening as they've exited the city, you know, they've gone to turn themselves in. You know, they wanted to get out of the situation. And since ISIS has been pushed out of Mosul, uh, that's just, this has caused these people to be refugees and they've left with all these women and children. Mm-hmm. So what's happening. So the military rounds them up. 
this army colonel, his name was uh, Ahmed Al-Tari, the military with this camp full of women and children. He's saying they treat him well. He's an Iraqi uh, officer. But a lot of Reuters reporters were talking about they saw hundreds of women and children on mattresses that were crawling with bugs. Wow. These tents in Iraq, as hot as Iraq is, with no air conditioning. The conditions are really, really horrid. And, you know, these people are from a lot of different nationalities. They're, they say they count like 13 different nationalities. Turkish, French, Russian are among all the languages that are spoken there. Huh. And it says Iraq actually, you know, they know that this is like a very short-term solution. They don't want to keep the people. Right. So what Iraq is trying to do is they're trying to negotiate with the embassies to return the women and children to okay. their to their respective countries. But there's pushback from the countries. You have families that are associated with ISIS. Obviously, there's going to be a concern. Like, you know, are they radicalized? It's not like women can't be radicalized. Right. Now, children... That's a whole nother issue because they're suffering. But again, like some of these women are like this lady in this story who lost her five-year-old son and, and, and senseless fighting. You People are telling these stories. It's horrendous. And she's saying she's been a victim to this. Who knows what's true in that? Like France, they say they want any of the citizens affiliated with ISIS to be prosecuted in Iraq. Mm -hmm. But these people aren't being prosecuted. But what they've also said is they want all the children to be able to come back right. and be taken care of by their system. Right. But they're saying the children without the mothers. Right. So you're splitting up the family. Right. Even further. Right. So it's just like a really, really... It's a pretty sticky, sticky situation, in my opinion. Like, what's the answer there? I don't know. Because I can understand all these nations having fears as to these women coming back. Right. Know, having been associated with ISIS, having lived there, their right. husbands are ISIS. This lady said she doesn't care about her husband. She was trying to escape him anyway. There, and, there are a lot of women that were apparently like kind of tricked into, you know, becoming part of, of that movement. Right. So I can, I mean, I can see why, you know, they're probably, yeah, I mean, it's going to go, it's going to go both ways. And it's obviously up to the respective countries. Like if they can prove they're, they're citizens of that country, right. Then that's up to the country to deal, you know, figure out how they're going to deal with them, I suppose. Um, but yeah, splitting up the family, it's just, it's, it really just is a terrible situation across the board because there's not, there's not any specific, you know, guidelines for something like that right? to deal with. I mean, having those kids in like, you know, foster care or something like that could, would just be a terrible, um, depending on, you know, where they're at. Um, and we know most foster care systems right. are, you know, like pretty subpar. Yeah. When, when you start institutionalizing children, you know, taking them away from the mother, there's nobody that's going to love a child more than the mother. Obviously. Sure. It's it's just not ideal. And 
like for me, the humanitarian side of me, when I read the story and started like seeing, like reading about the conditions that these people are living in, of course, with children, especially like it just, it touched me. It hurts me like to think that these children are going to have to live in conditions like this, whether or not it's temporary. And I hope it's temporary. But I would also hate to see that they'd be stripped away from their their mom as well as right. dad. Like regardless of that decision dad has made, but right. taking children away from their mothers is crazy. Um, I don't see how Iraq would feel comfortable keeping like the whole families there. And I can see them. Right. Like, All right. Well, these people are your citizens. Take them back. Right. But again, I, given the climate of the world, the fear, right. and rightfully so in some cases, you know, right. who knows? Like if somebody comes back and they're part of a cell or something, right? You, you just like, what's the answer there? It's 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 a. I'm really torn on this whole thing. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, again, like a lot of the, like a lot of those women were forced against their will right. or they were somehow, you know, impressionable and roped into things and realized they're in over their head. Right. And now there's a child involved because, you know, right. um, so what do you, what do you do there? I mean, you're right in all accounts that, I mean, it's up to the, it was going to be up to the country of origin to, to figure out what they want to do with them, like keep them and, and debrief them and, figure out, you know, see if they, they can figure out if there's any association with anything or, right. um, psychological assessments and whatnot. And I mean, they should do the same for the children too. psychological assessments Absolutely. and see what damage has been caused to them from being part of, uh, such a ruthless movement. Right. I mean, who knows, you know, what they were subjected to as well. Um, I think it's just a pretty bad situation across the board. You know, you don't, few people think about, uh, you know, the children and, and wives of, of ISIS fighters because everyone's just like, oh, ISIS is bad. You don't right. think that they're guys who have wives and children who may be there against their will. And the children, you know, they just want to leave with their children and they can't. You right. know, they made it they made a mistake or they were forced into doing something and now they're they're kind of in a bad situation, you know? Right. And I, I can see like and from the perspective of this woman who's already lost a child, lost her five-year-old son, right. who's doing something as innocent as being outside playing. Right. Get killed by, gets killed by a rocket. Are right. you kidding me? I can definitely see her motivation of wanting to protect her newborn baby, her little right. girl, from having that exact same kind of scenario happening. Right. It's it's tragic. It's It's a tough thing to deal with. But to even feel like, you know, to people who are, are angry or upset at things going on in America, just remember that you you don't have to worry about your child being outside and, and a missile coming and, you know, demolishing him. Right. Any hour of any day. Right. I mean, we clearly have other problems, law enforcement shooting black people. But for the most part, we're not going to we're not going to have a missile destroy our entire neighborhood. Right. In the middle of the night. Yeah. Thinking about that, like just trying to place yourself in that scenario, like situations with refugees and 
and then people, countries being scared of refugees. They may be hidden terrorists within the refugees. Uh, let's talk about what creates terrorism. Let's talk about what creates refugees. Right. But again, that's dealing with the core problem, which we don't. We, we're very reactionary. Right. And even when we learn and figure out what the core problem is, we sort of are just like, let's just figure out how to end this. And then it's gone, quote unquote. Right. It's never really gone. No, it actually typically gets worse. Right. Gets more entrenched. It, uh, it, it magnifies. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's go for my final story of this week. Um, and this one comes to us from Newsweek. Damien Sharkov is the author. Um, headline is Russia is preparing for a massive war, but we don't know where, warns Ukrainian president. So Ukrainian president Petro Poroshenko uh, said Thursday that upcoming Russian military drill in Belarus shows Moscow is preparing its forces for a much bigger conflict. Russia's backing of the separatists in the eastern region of Ukraine um, and its annexation of Crimea show no sign of being reversed. Under the guise of strategic command exercises, we are not ruling out the creation of a new assault group of Russian troops to strike Ukrainian territory, Poroshenko said. Some 2,000 transporters with soldiers and equipment have approached and are approaching our borders. Russia is moving on uh, Belarus and Georgia. The Ukrainian leader said Moscow was evaluating its capabilities along a hypothetical Western front. So I guess they're running military drills, and what they're doing seems like a little bit more activity um, than your standard military drill. And they seem to be what he thinks is assessing their ability to take and annex Ukraine and Georgia. Which they've been moving in that direction right. for years now. Right, 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 exactly. I know also just recently, what, about two or three days ago, maybe something like that, Russia was talking about having uh, the UN come into the Ukraine. And as a matter of fact, I, I saw, like, I didn't actually read the article. I just saw, like, the headline and kind of, like, maybe the first paragraph from uh, Fareed Zakaria talking about how it's a Trojan horse move on Russia's part. And I, you know, just had a busy week, so I didn't really get to delve into that story. I think uh, Putin is very... He's a very brilliant strategist, I think. You know, I, I'm not going to... I don't want to throw out... Alex Jones type conspiracy theories. Right. One thing that I was thinking about that that struck my mind was I was thinking about I don't know if you read a story uh, it was back in August that Russia had started a regular ferry service between Russia and North Korea. Okay. Um, supposedly it's to carry uh, Chinese tourists and Russian tourists um, to North Korea for you know visiting i guess to, to to look at the uh the massive tourism tourism industry in north korea right who doesn't uh, want to go there to right pie, yeah it just seems super exciting <laughs> exactly um so it was interesting to me because i was like it seems like an odd time to start a ferry service and if you've noticed that north korea has been ramping up its nuclear production and right I'm thinking i'm like is there some way that they're using this ferry service to to uh, funnel either nuclear material or information. Another Cuban missile crisis. To 
North Korea and, right. and guys of this ferry. Um, and it's, you know, it sounds like an Alex Jones conspiracy theory. But if if Putin can destabilize the region there and everybody's sort of focusing on um, North Korea and North Korea is going to just, he knows North Korea is just going to, you know, be, do what they're going to do. Kim right. Jong-un is just, you know, he's just, he's full of piss and vinegar right now. And if he just keeps feeding him, then he's going to sort of, you know, lose a little bit, you know, the region's going to destabilize a bit. Um, and with that all going on, then he would have a better shot at, at going into the Ukraine. Exactly, because right. you cannot spread out. Uh, you can't spread everybody so thin, right. you know? So if the UN's super focused right now on on North Korea's nuclear plans, um, at some point, you know, it's... Right. And that was just a thought that I had. I remember reading that article, okay. and I was like, it's kind of weird to, to start a ferry service now. Yeah, I hadn't heard about that ferry yeah. service, but yeah, who I knows? believe it. I believe it, it's, it comes out of Vladivostok. Okay. So, um, but they claim the, the ferry company that... I can't remember the name of the ferry company that, that uh, is running it, the, the boat or the ship company. Right. But I have a feeling... If you were to do some uh, some detective work, that you'd probably find that Putin somehow has some sort of investment in that in that boat company, in the shipping company. You're probably right. That guy knows how to make his money. I guess he's like extraordinarily. He is wealthy. he is supposedly the richest man in the world, but he has his money sort of hidden. Right. Uh, he has access to it. Other people have it. Right. So it's not really his per se. <laughs> but he has the access to it. He just still supposedly he he drives a Volvo that's like ten years old and lives in a one bedroom apartment. Which come on, I right. mean, you know. Just as a quick little aside, had you heard about um, the uh, the Chinese president like saying how he's determined to keep anything from happening on the Korean Peninsula, no war. Like it sounded pretty much, it was a very stern kind of admonishment, not only to North Korea, but to the U S right. That China. Would. Well, I, I saw that they were going to start actually enforcing more sanctions on North right. Korea. Okay. China was, yes, okay. China was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though Trump had to say some disparaging bullshit about <laughs> China, of course, <laughs> Right. Because he's the best at everything. You have no idea how good he is, folks. Believe me. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. I was hoping this week to make it a Trump-free zone, but it's hard not to throw jabs in there. Right, you you have to. (laughs) So I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen, how this is all going to play out, but it sounds like there's definitely some sort of destabilization going on in that entire region, whether that's being fed by Putin or not, because for him to play the long game here, to interrupt our elections with information and then to feed whatever maybe he's feeding to North Korea in order to just weaken and spread things out enough and distract people enough that he can finally start to move his pieces on the board. I mean, could be, it could be a brilliant move on his part. I really hope that's not happening. Right. Things start inching towards a a third world war of sorts, or at least causing issues like in Europe. Right. Um, And it's amazing. I mean, he's, he's, definitely been eyeing the ukraine for such a long time right and annexing and you know the move they made in georgia like earlier right. in the uh in this in this um, millennium 
So it's interesting to me too, because I'm thinking to myself, so if you're the richest man in the world, right, let's just say that. And dudes, I don't know, that guy's like 63 years old now, maybe 64 years old. Right. He's not young. He's not, he's not a young bird anymore. Right. Kim Jong-un is like 31, something like that. Yeah. He's a, yeah. Young. So Putin is being 63, 64. He's maybe got, I'm sure with those Russian meals and the vodka, he's probably got a good, what, 10, 15 years left. (laughs) And if you're the richest man in the world, why the hell would you not just sit back, fish and drink vodka in the mountains somewhere? Like what is the purpose (laughs) of you trying to move on the Ukraine and then you're going to die. Who cares? Like what's, you know, I never understood like, like the same thing with like, with Trump guys already rich, man. Right. Just chill. Well, guys like that definitely have this huge, huge ego. Right. And they want to leave an impact on the world. Right. But, but what is that? What is that impact that you're leaving? What is your legacy? I mean, to do something, to do something like that for, for Putin to, to try and, you know, annex, uh, the Ukraine, like well, he's trying to uh, reestablish the Russian Empire. Right. Uh, that's he's an empire builder. Right. That's what he does. And I mean, and the other part of that becomes that you know Russia's Russia has oil, but we're all moving away from oil, whether he likes it or not. Hmm. That's right. just that's just happening. Yeah. So you're just you're already becoming less and less valuable. I mean, but right now oil is still lucrative. <laughs> moving away I suppose, or not yeah i guess the gas prices went ex- up ever it's since we had still these extraordinarily these lucrative and yeah, not everyone's going to solar power right now unfortunately but i'm trying to change that <laughs> <laughs> well that is a that's a wrap for my stories you got one more all right now let's deal with the uh whole other industry okay my uh next article comes from the uh business insider the uh, the author is Jeff Friedrich. The name of the, uh, the article is Nobody Wants to Be a Pilot Anymore. Here's how working for an airline lost its glamour. Interesting. Yeah, when I saw that headline, it jumped out at me because growing up when I grew up, I was born late 60s. So from the moment I was born until... Maybe I guess about I really started learning about this issue maybe towards the end of the 90s, beginning of 2000s, that airline pilots weren't making much money. I remember hearing that airline pilots made like a really, really good income. You know, historically they had. Mm-hmm. And what's happened, say one solidly middle class, the airline industry itself, these major airlines, Delta, American, United, they've worked really, really hard, made it more unattractive, tenuous, and poorly paid for pilots. Mm-hmm. And the airline industry in general has changed. People that used to be, say, for instance, Greyhound Trailways people are flying with all these discount airlines. Right, yeah. It it used to be a point in time when when flying was this big deal. People dressed nicely to get on the planes, behaved nicely when they were on the planes, you know, because they were paying a premium. Right. You know, air... Airline travel was one of those things that was more a high class kind of uh, affair. Right. But it was made accessible, especially with companies like, 
Southwest Airlines, all right. these discount airlines. Uh, right. You have Spirit in that uh, frame. Right. The class of people has lessened, you know, so flying has become not so magical to people anymore. Right. <laughs> it's it's basically taking the bus now. Right, right. It's not as privileged as it once was or conceived right. to be. And also, a lot of these major airlines, like that. Now, keep in mind, it's really it's really a uh, an oligarchy with regards to the airline industry. There are only a few players in that space that are really making money. Right, and. And they subcontract to a lot of regional providers. Hmm. Now, for new pilots to come into the system now, there are still pilots who, like if you work for a United and you fly international routes, then you're making like, you know, 200K a year. Mm-hmm. Great. That's a great wage. But the regional carriers, when people are getting right out of college, they're pilots, they got their pilot license. And, and in order to get their foot in the door, they fly regional uh, providers who are usually subcontracted by these major airlines. And I remember my mom used to work for American. That's actually where she retired from. Okay. And, um, and I remember back in the uh, late 90s, strikes and, you know, talks of strikes, especially like by the pilots unions, mm-hmm. because they were trying to fight how many of these routes would be going to regional carriers and, you know, right. the pay. To this day, regional airline pilots, some are paid as low as 15K to 20K a year. Wow. Think That's about insane. that. Fifteen no to twenty k a year. That's nothing. That's insane. That's like poverty level. Absolutely. And they fly these ridiculous hours, right? Yeah. You know the turnarounds. You know. Yeah. So these guys are coming into this industry for less than a like for the pay of a fast food worker, right? And they have countless lives in their hands. Wow. <laughs> That's a little crazy. Now, their hope and dream is to get on with the major airline right. and fly the international right. routes and make the big bucks. But this is their pay their dues. But I think in paying dues, it shouldn't be at poverty level wages. Absolutely. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty specialized industry. Right. I have no idea how to fly a plane. I can't imagine these people, why they should be making less than 70K a year. Yeah. I mean, that's... To start, that's a pretty good, and I would feel better. I mean, you get what you pay for. I would feel better if these people were making 70K a year. Right, exactly. Yeah. And at this point in time, and and again, these guys fly regionally so that maybe they live in Nebraska, they live in some place that doesn't have a high cost of living. However, still, sure, 15 to 20K, I don't care where you are in America, that's not a lot of money. No, it's not. And especially for having a skill set of flying a plane. Right. So that's taking away the glamour of the airline industry. That's, you know, debunking the whole thought process that that's a great industry to make good money. <laughs> On top of the fact of, I mean, I've noticed over the last 10 years flying back and forth from, from L.A. to Chicago or just across the country. Um, as you can see right right now with the three hurricanes that are going on in the Gulf and the Pacific, or I mean the Atlantic, flights have gotten a lot more turbulent, like a lot more turbulent over the past 10 years. I would hope that 
there will also be a push to have better trained pilots that are going to deal with this. I mean, I, one flight I was coming back, I think it was last year, the year before. Right. All of a sudden, they were, you know, they're flying, they're going to fly around this storm that's in the country. And, um, the all of a sudden tornadoes just started forming everywhere. So they had to divert and land in El Paso. And that was a really bumpy flight. And then when we took off from El Paso to go around the southern route to cut you know, to curve back into LA, that landing was rough. Like the wind the wind gusts were crazy. Wow. Um the the pilot handled it really well. So I I think he was pretty experienced and had been around for a long time. And I think I was yeah. I think I was flying United. Um, it was United or Southwest. I'm not sure, but yeah, I don't necessarily want someone that's making 15 K that's been working 10 hours and right. flying in the middle of the night dealing with tornadoes and right. Like we want, we want pilots that are like Scully, Scullenberger, the guy that Sully. went, you know, Sully, yeah, Sully, I'm sorry. Yeah. Pardon me. And I met him. He's a nice guy, actually. He's a really <laughs> nice guy. Sorry, Sully. <laughs> yeah, but um, that's what we want. That's what we all hope for that's in the cockpit. Right. And unfortunately, that's not been the case. And this article also talks, it was actually a really lengthy article. It talked about how some, like one of the regionals ended up filing for bankruptcy and closing because or like going out of business because they said they couldn't even hire pilots. They couldn't hire. Them. So there's not a, there was not enough. There's not enough. Exactly. Because nobody wants to train. Like if they hear I'm going to be making what 15, 20 grand right. a year. Are you kidding me? I'll, I'll go that, do X instead yeah, of this. You that's know? sort of absurd. Right. And then also comes back to a fact of it's lost the, it's lost the prestige of like being a pilot, sort of like police officers or you right. know, like there used to be this sort of thing where, and then it just became like, it's a job. Right. Like what's that job? Oh, it, it'll, I'll get, you know, I'll get X amount of benefits. I'll get my pension, you know, when I finish. Right. Okay. That sounds like a good deal. As opposed to the people who are really passionate, passionate. about flying, right. like Sully, right. or you know, or ex Air Force, or people you want to you want to encourage and pay correctly to get into those positions. It's a specialized field. Any kind of skilled trade, absolutely, exactly. exactly. Yeah, and I I saw some other very interesting things, things that I didn't know. Like my favorite president, President Carter, and a Democratic Congress in 1978 actually deregulated the uh, airline industry. Interesting. And that caused it to go into where it is today. Now, right now, the airline industry is making record profits. Sure. They're making record profits. Right. But are, they're starving these. Yeah, they're right. Seats <laughs> Less are small. Room, exactly. More people in. Hitting you with a ton of different fees. I was on a I was on a spirit flight last year. Oh, I had, break and, your spirit! And it was oh, wow. <laughs> you had a lot of love for Spirit Airlines. Oh, oh. I was I I'd never taken a spirit flight before, and I was surprised. I was like, this looks like a CTA bus. I took Spirit one time, and I'll never take it again. Like yeah, I was like surfing the web for the cheapest rate, and I right, saw yeah. Spirit. Wow, oh, absolutely, man. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> They don't tell you in that low rate. Once you're on the plane, they're going to charge you a fee for breathing. Right. They just pay like $10 to print out your boarding pass. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get it, but you know. So your price goes up. Like all these little stupid fees they hit you with. It happens. And uh, yeah. So, but they were talking about how in this article, when these 
airlines declare bankruptcy. You know, it's an easy thing for them to do. And investors will always invest in the airlines because unlike any other industry, when they declare bankruptcy, instead of uh, having to liquidate their assets, sell them off, these lenders actually get to keep the assets. Oh, wow. Right. And then they can just like start a whole nother airline. They wow. have all their planes. They have all the assets. That's weird. So in that. It makes the union's position very, very weak. The union can't like demand certain things because of these deregulations. Right. Because they'll just be like, oh, we'll go bankrupt. Right. If you like try to force our hand to make us pay you X amount yeah. of money, we'll just go bankrupt that, and you'll be out of a job. And they'll just, just restructure and hire on some other, you know. That just comes back to the, again, like the government doing certain things well and not doing other things. And, that's again capitalism being a monopoly game right you have to there has to be some sort of rules that everybody can play somewhat fair there's room to make money if you are forward thinking and revolutionary and like people used to be like forward and yeah uh, you, right. you know what i mean like there was there was there was industry there was progress right and now it just seems like obviously the politicians aren't and in bed with big banks and, you know, CEOs of large companies and they just perpetuate this cycle of squeezing every last dime they can't can out of people that don't have any money. Deregulation is just uninhibited capitalism is terrible. That's that's the best way to put it. Uninhibited capitalism. Everything in moderation. You cannot just let things run wild and the market sort it out because it won't. It, the market's unfair. There was some documentary that I never got a chance to see that I've always wanted to see. I need to look this thing up where it talked about businesses like corporations had the mentality of a serial killer. (laughs) The the thought process, like if you look at a corporation as a person, Mm -hmm. the mentality for a corporation to be successful is very sociopathic. I mean, yeah, obviously. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if you've ever read the 48 laws of power. I have. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've shown some people like the different titles of the laws and explain, and they're like, you know, the very first law is like, tr- take credit for other people's work. And they're right. like, oh, that's so terrible. But if you think of most of the people who are your, your manager, your boss, whoever, that's what they do. Absolutely. This is, this is what's happening. Like as much as you don't want to think this is what people are like, the, these people that are, are running these companies or you know, looking at companies like a per, like having the rights of a person as a corporation, LLC, what have you, in America, which is just fucked up. Supreme Court, awesome job. Yeah, great job, guys. <laughs> um, you know, that's, I mean, that's just out of, it's, it is, it's, it's uninhibited capitalism. And it's like, it, try playing a board game without any rules and just being like, yeah, go ahead, go to town. What do you think is going to happen there? It's going to be a really <laughs> shitty game. No yeah. one's going to be happy. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, maybe the kid that gets there first and grabs the handfuls of money out of the bank and, you know, <laughs> then everybody else is just going to be screwed. Right. Yeah. So not having rules for these guys to abide by. I mean, and not enforcing them. Right. Or making the rules and then not enforcing them and finding loopholes and, you know. Yeah. A lot of these uh, administrations that are supposed to be regulatory bodies are toothless, you know, in our food industry. But I, I just really, 
it's amazing to me that nobody wants to be a pilot anymore. It was always such a glamorous thing. Yeah. Pilots, like the cool uniforms, you're, you are flying, you're right. you know, piloting a plane. People are no longer impressed with anything anymore. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think it doesn't, doesn't, uh, I think Louis C.K. had had a whole bit about, he's like, you're in a tube in the sky. Right. You don't realize what's going on. I mean, I sometimes I sit on a plane, I'm like, this is crazy. Yeah. How did someone come up with this? And then especially the sophistication of like, these things are basically flying themselves. Yeah. They're doing all the balancing and the tracking and like, it's just, it's completely crazy when you really think about what's happening. So one thing I found interesting, it says between 2000 and 2012, the median weekly earnings for these pilots fell 9.5%. And they say that's a lower wage growth than 74% of other professions, according to the uh, general accounting office. Wow. And that's in an environment where these these airlines are making record profits. They're driving the median weekly income of these pilots down to such an egregious amount. I would say that there are a lot of companies making record profits nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Not just the airline industry, but, and, and that does not trickle down. Right. Trickle down economics is not working. And here's one thing that I want to point out, because I think, honestly, that is not a partisan issue. No. Because these regulations, like I said, this one, and again, and I was not being facetious when I said Jimmy Carter is my favorite president. I love Jimmy Carter. However, him and his Democratic Congress deregulated that industry politicians are in the pockets of industry until we move money out of politics and and to that extent which citizens united which we've already kind of talked about put more money right <laughs> and into politics it's a, we're we're going to continue to see that these companies making these record profits at the expense of what happens with us, with common man. And, but I, I just, it just blows my mind that a pilot can walk around making 15 to 20 K a year. We need to pay the pilots more. We need to pay the teachers more. Say that. We again. need to pay everybody more because <laughs> things are getting more expensive. Right. And people are making the same amount of money that they've been making. For and the wealth gap, the wealth gap in America is increasing. It's increasing significantly. It needs to change. Well, with that said, I think it's uh, time to wrap things up for this week. Well, it's been fun. I think we had uh, some good varying topics this week. Yeah, I think we, I think we kind of, uh, I think we kind of covered a lot of, a lot of ground uh, this week. So, Love you guys. Make sure you go to our Facebook page and like the page and keep up, uh, keep informed of when the next show's coming out. Yeah. And uh, you, can, you actually can do all that by going to the website, redallovershow.com. We'll see you guys again soon. Mm-hmm.